Good morning. So good to have you with us this morning. It's so good to see us all back together again. You know, we often talk about New Year's as the time when we're going to make resolutions to come to church more, to be more active in our church family. But really, it's kind of a new year when school starts back. And you can kind of look at it that way, and maybe, maybe you're looking at it that way. Maybe you're looking at now we're getting back into a routine. It's time to get back into a routine when it comes to church as well. And so if you're visiting with us this morning and, and you're thinking about uh, looking for a church home, then we'd love to invite you to be a part of the family here that is growing and thriving. A lot of good things on the horizon here at Oldham Lane. And we are in the middle of a series entitled One Word, and the one word that we're looking at this morning is inspiration. You know, in Genesis chapter 3, we find an all-too-familiar episode. The devil, disguised as a serpent, slithers into the presence of Adam and Eve, who are enjoying the perks of paradise, and the devil, disguised as a serpent, his main goal is to get Eve to shift her focus away from what God has said and onto that forbidden fruit. And I want you to notice how the devil does it. He basically says, did God actually say that? I mean, did God really say that you can't eat of that fruit? Do you really think that God is going to kill you if you eat a piece of fruit? And of course, we know that that challenge worked, that Eve listened to another voice, and we've been living with the consequences ever since, right? Satan questioned the word of God. He wasn't quizzing Eve because he desired a sincere answer. He knew what God had said. He was trying to raise doubt in her mind by bringing up the question, did God really say that? Why do I bring up that story? Because I think it speaks volumes to us today. Because I think there is a very important truth that we can discern from this passage that shapes the church, that shapes us as individual Christians, and it is this. The Bible is the ultimate authority for who we are and what we do. Our identity is found in the Word of God. Our character is molded and shaped by Scripture. Our church's identity is defined by God's Word. You think about the implications of this. This means that from Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, all the way to Revelation 22-21, where it says, Amen, we believe it. From those beginnings, the end, and every word in between, we accept as the authoritative Word of God. We base our lives on it, how we function, how we live, what we say, what we do, how we think. Because it's from God, it has to be authoritative. If it comes from man, then we have every right to, to stand in judgment, to criticize it. But if it comes from God, we have only one option, and that is to bow down to it, to bend our lives to it. The Bible is supreme, and it is final. Nothing contained within it is up for a vote. We don't get to give our opinion on it. We simply bow to it. You believe that. I believe that. That's why you're here this morning. But the simple formula is this. God wrote the Bible. The Bible comes from Him. The Bible comes from God. God is the ultimate authority. 
And so, step three, the Bible is the ultimate authority. Eve refused to listen to the ultimate authority, and it cost her. She allowed another voice to whisper in her ear. She allowed another voice to override the Word of God. And like I said, we've been living with the consequences ever since. And there are voices in our culture today that are doing the very same thing. They are trying to crowd out the Word of God and whisper in your ear, did God really say that? And it's not just those outside of the church. There are those in the church who are asking that same question. Did God really say that? And unfortunately, they're not always asking because they want a sincere answer. Sometimes they're asking because they want to find a loophole and they want to find a way to undermine the Word of God. I heard about a church that was full of strife. The members could not get along. They were fighting all the time. They didn't have elders. They didn't have leaders. And so they had once a month those dreaded business meetings. If you've been a church in a church that didn't have elders, you know that business meetings can get a little heated. There can be a lot of controversy, a lot of strife. And so this particular church, they had their, their business meeting, and the preacher stood up, and he began the business meeting just by reading God's Word. He just read a portion of God's Word. And when he sat down, another man stood up, and he said, Mr. Chairman, I move that God's Word stand as read and approved. And everybody agreed. And it's that way with us. We know that God's word stands as approved because he is the authority. He is the author of it. The Bible stands approved as read without correction, without alteration, without omission, without addition. We answer the question, did God really say that with an emphatic yes? Absolutely he did. And we trust those words because it is the absolute authority. And I think if we're going to talk about the authority of God's word, we have to go into the inspiration behind it. When I was putting this lesson together, I was thinking about how in the world am I going to make the subject of inspiration something that is not boring or an academic lecture? I mean, it seems like inspiration would be better served discussed in a class setting where we can answer questions, we can talk about it in a discussion-type format. I mean, I could talk about verbal inspiration versus plenary. I could talk about limited inerrancy and all those things, and you'd probably be drooling within five minutes. So it's my task this morning to try to make the subject of inspiration something that is practical, interesting, engaging, and something that hopefully you walk out of here thinking, I can use that. Again, I didn't come up with the words, so don't blame me. So if this doesn't work out this morning, do like you do every week and pretend that I did a good job and tell me, hey, great job, and just walk out of here, okay? What would you do? Let me ask you this. If Oprah Winfrey asked you to come on her show for an interview, and she wanted to ask you about your position on homosexuality, would you go on the show? What would you say? How would you approach that? Now, keep in mind, millions of people love Oprah. They're going to be watching and tuning in. They're going to listen to what you have to say concerning this topic, one of the most controversial topics in our culture today. How would you handle that? That is the task that T.D. Jakes faced a few years ago 
T.D. Jakes preaches at a mega church in Dallas, some 30,000 members. And after worship one Sunday morning, his parishioners stuck around and he stuck around and Oprah came in. And on stage, she interviewed T.D. Jakes in front of 30,000 members and in front of millions of viewers. And among the questions she asked was his position on homosexuality. Here's what he said. I think that sex between two people of the same sex is condemned in the scriptures. And as long as it is condemned in the scriptures, I don't get to say what I think. I get to say what the Bible says. Now, Oprah went on to talk to Jakes about accusations that have been levied against him and his church about how they are unloving toward the homosexual community. And here's what he went on to say. He said, that's not true at all. The perception in our society today is that if you don't say you're for same-sex marriage, or if you say homosexuality is a sin, then you're homophobic, or you're against gay people. And that's not true. He continued, I'm not called to give my opinion. I'm called as a pastor to give the scriptural position on it. Doesn't mean that I have to agree with you to love you. I don't dislike anybody. I love everybody. Now, what does that have to do with what we're talking about? Well, as you can imagine, T.D. Jakes received a lot of backlash for his comments. With such a controversial topic, there are those who labeled him as bigoted, as unloving, not compassionate. But I think he brings up a good point. My point is not to focus on the issue of homosexuality this morning. My point is to focus on what he said in his statement. He said, I don't get to say what I think. I get to say what the Bible says. And to that, I would agree wholeheartedly. It's not exactly accurate to say the inspired writers of Scripture. That's a phrase that we use often, isn't it? Inspired writers of Scripture. That's not exactly accurate. What we should be saying is the writers of inspired scripture. Because the emphasis should be on what they wrote, not on the authors themselves. Peter had something to say about that. Eddie read it a moment ago. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. It's what T.D. Jakes said. I don't get to say what I think. I get to say what the Bible says. These men wrote what God said, not what they think. Moses didn't wake up one morning and decide, I, I think I'm going to write scripture. You know, if you look at Paul's writings, we see that there's a personality involved. Luke wrote the gospel of, of, of his own name and the book of Acts in his own style. You can read through Paul's writings, as I said, and you can see that there is definitely a style and there's a structure there that he used. John wrote his gospel in a way that is different than the way that Matthew, Mark, and Luke wrote their gospel. They all have their own style. There's an individuality that we can see. So when we look to Scripture, we see the who, the where, and the how. The who is the author, who is God. You know, the where did the Bible come from is God's mouth. And the how is how it was transmitted. God used fallible human beings to write down an infallible word. Human beings played a part 
in assembling what we call the Word of God. There has to be a humanity in the Scriptures. We see this personality of the writers when we read the whole, what the Holy Spirit guided them to write. Notice what Luke writes in Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 1. It says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. And so what Luke is saying basically is, I interviewed people. I went out and I talked to people, and I carefully compiled this work to be told precisely as it is. So I think it's safe to say that God used the unique personality of these individuals to convey his message, the message that he breathed out. And again, Remember the words of Peter, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Chris, are you saying that the words that, that are written on these pages of Scripture were protected by God so that they would be without flaw? And I'm telling you, yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. The miracle of God's holy word is that he used fallible human beings to write an infallible word. You think about the magnitude of this for a moment. The scriptures are written by 40 different authors from all different kinds of backgrounds and walks of life, from three different continents, right? Three different languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, over a span of 1,500 years covering a wide range of subjects, many of which are controversial, and yet all the authors spoke in agreement. There are no contradictions, despite what some might say. There is thematic harmony, commonality, consistency of data throughout the book. From Genesis to Revelation, there is one unfolding story that is that God's redemption is for all who obey. And so imagine questioning 40 different people from all different walks of life, from peasants to kings, from different socioeconomic backgrounds, from three different continents, speaking three different languages, covering a wide range of topics. Imagine asking them to all write down their thoughts and their views of Jesus, the Messiah, about God. Imagine that they took different approaches. Some wrote poetry, some gave it a historical account, some talked about prophecy. What do you think that you would end up with? If you were to ask 40 different authors to do all of that from all the things that we talked about, what do you think you're going to end up with? You're probably going to end up with a potluck of views and ideas, aren't you? A hodgepodge of beliefs. And yet that's not what we see in Scripture. We see harmony, commonality. We see a, a perfect cohesion. That's the miraculous beauty of God's Word. Inspiration of the Bible means that God used prophetic agency. There's a human element involved. The Hebrew writer refers to it in Hebrews 1.1 when he states, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. The prophets were speaking. They were writing words on parchment, but those words were not their own. They belonged to God. They were controlled by God. Man was the instrument, but God was the author. And that is why inspiration applies to, to the words of Scripture and not mainly the writer's. Of scripture and this is an important point lest we forget what the emphasis really should be on it's about the words not the author necessarily 
we can learn something about those words from the author, but ultimately, who wrote it? God did. Which brings us to another very important point, and one that seems silly to even make, but one that we should recognize no less. And that is the Bible had a divine origin. You know that, I know that, but it, it's worth mentioning. The Bible repeatedly claims to be the Word of God. Some 3,800 times the Old Testament asserts its divine origin. The New Testament is no less explicit. For instance, Paul affirms the inspiration of Scripture in a very familiar passage, one that we know well probably, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That word, God breathed or breathed out by God, it may appear a little differently depending on what version you use, but whatever version or translation that you use, if it's a valid translation, it's going to use something like breathed out by God or God breathed, inspired by God perhaps. God breathed is better because that's a compound word in the Greek, theonoustos. Theo meaning God and noustos meaning breathed out, wind or breath. Neustos is where we get our term pneumatic in the English, like a pneumatic drill. It's where we get that term. And so you look at Theonustos, and it tells us blatantly and without question that these words came directly from God's mouth. He breathed them out. Inspiration is a compound Greek word that tells us exactly where God and his word came from. The word scripture comes from the Greek word graphe, which means writings. And so this leaves no doubt as to the fact that when Paul spoke about the scriptures being God-breathed, he was speaking specifically about the sacred text, about the scriptures. In a practical sense, the phrase inspired by God and the word scriptures are actually used interchangeably. So, why is all that useful? Well, Paul is telling us that Scripture had a divine origin. He's saying that these sacred writings didn't just come from the mind of man, that man penned them, yes, but God is the author. And by using that term, theonoustos, Paul is making a very strong statement. He is saying unequivocally that the very words of Scripture come from the mouth of God. The words of the Bible are breathed out by God. Now, based on all of that, there is only one conclusion that we can come to and one conclusion that matters, and that is that the Bible is 100% reliable. If it comes from a perfect God, it's got to be perfectly reliable, doesn't it? If God authored it, then the only logical conclusion that we can reach is that it came from an unblemished God, and so we have a perfectly trustworthy Bible because we have a perfectly trustworthy God. We believe that. Some argue against that. Some argue that it couldn't be perfect because man wrote it and man is fallible. Some argue from the point of limited inerrancy, meaning that God's words were perfect, but they weren't recorded perfectly because they were recorded by man. But here's the deal. If God's word is not inerrant, meaning without error, if God's word is not infallible, meaning unable to make mistakes, then you or I have no business trusting it. If we can't put our trust and faith in every word of the Bible, then where does that leave us? But I could tell you that I'm Abraham Lincoln. Doesn't mean that I am, right? I could tell you all these things, but at some point, the proof's in the pudding, right? At some point, you have to prove it. At some point, you have to bear it out. 
and, and show the evidence. And there is a mountain of evidence. So much so that we won't get too far into it this morning. But there's historical, there's archaeological evidence, and continues to be more and more archaeological evidence all the time confirming the Word of God. But one of the interesting pieces of evidence that we cannot overlook is the fulfillment of prophecy. You know, scholars have estimated, depending on which method is used to count them, that there are some 1,000 prophecies in the Bible, and virtually all of these, except those, of course, that were relating to end times, have been precisely fulfilled. Now, you can get a little more specific than that, and you can take, for instance, the predictive prophecy concerning Jesus. Now, there are many re- uh, objections that are raised by skeptics that are wanting to downplay the significance of predictive prophecy and people who are wanting to discredit the Bible. One objection is the coincidence argument. And that is someone who says that Jesus fulfilled these prophecies concerning him just by a matter of coincidence. You know, he didn't intend to, it just kind of worked out that way. Now here's why that's ridiculous. When you look at the odds and how astronomical they are, someone did the math and figured out that the probability of just eight prophecies being fulfilled is one chance in 100 million billion. That number, of course, is millions of times greater, probably, I don't know, maybe even billions of times greater than the number of people who have ever walked the face of the earth, right? So, I mean, that's quickly dismissed. But it was also calculated that if you took this number of silver dollars... They could cover the entire state of Texas at a depth of two feet. And if you were to take one of those silver dollars and randomly mark it and throw it in the pile and blindfold someone and traipse them around the state of Texas walking all over these silver dollars, if they were to bend down and pick up one randomly, the odds of them picking up the one that marked, the same odds of a person fulfilling just eight of these prophecies. And remember, there are many more than that. Just eight of them by coincidence. The uncanny accuracy of the scriptures is also evidence pointing to the trustworthy of the Bibleness uh, of the Bible. Throughout the pages of scripture, the writers touch upon many areas of academic interest like history and geography and, and, and science. And while making these passing connections, it's, ex- it's astounding how many times the writers don't slip up. Their, their information, there's no incidental mistakes. Uh, you know, that's common even among the most skilled researchers and authors, and yet the biblical narrative remains absent of any of these blunders. Such inerrant accuracy certainly is evidence of inspiration. The fact that the scriptures have survived the test of time is another amazing piece of evidence. You know, the Bible has been criticized, it's been destroyed, it's been, it's been outlawed, but it continues to survive. In all, there are about 24,000 manuscripts of the New Testament in existence today, ranking it first among manuscript evidence. And when you look at that a little further, not only is there a mountain of manuscripts that have t- stood the test of time, there's also an amazing uniformity within them all. Scholars of textual criticism from virtually every theological position, including atheists, agree that the scriptures have been remarkably preserved far more than any other ancient document. Even the most cautious estimates suggest that over 90% of the Old Testament and over 97% of the New Testament are completely beyond dispute. 
through the proper application of textual criticism, comparing all the available manuscripts with one another. It has been concluded that the New Testament is 99.5% accurate. You say, well, that's not perfect. Well, hang on. The New Testament contains 20,000 lines, and of these 20,000 lines, 40 lines are in question. In other words, of the 20,000 lines examined and critiqued, 0.5% are questionable. Now, you take another piece of antiquity like the Iliad, for example. It contains approximately 15,600 lines, of which 764 are in question. That equals about 5%. That's 10 times more variance than the New Testament document, and yet nobody really refutes its historicity or its validity. So, fewer there are fewer questions concerning the New Testament, concerning the Bible, but also, what's even more interesting is that of the 0.5% variant found in the New Testament, only one-eighth of it amounts to anything other than a stylistic difference or a misspelling. And so that has led respected scholars Norman Geisler and William Nix to conclude this, that the New Testament has not only survived in more manuscripts than any other book from antiquity, but it has survived in a purer form than any other great book. A form that is 99.5% pure. And as I said, when you look at that variant that makes it less than 100%, we're not talking about matters that confuse doctrine or things that we place our full faith and trust in. We're talking about grammatical, we're talking about misspellings, things of that nature. These guys right here are not Church of Christ, okay? We would expect that from our own people, right? To say something like this. But here's the deal. I know that I'm on the brink of losing you and you're about to drool all over yourselves and fall asleep because inspiration is not one of those topics that necessarily gets us excited to get up in the morning. But here's the deal. All of that is background to this. We could go on talking about the historical evidence. We could go on talking about the archaeological evidence. We could talk about all the other things that I mentioned earlier, but for the sake of time, we'll save that for another lesson. I want to say this as we kind of wrap things up. Just because the Bible is the infallible and inerrant Word of God, that does not mean that it's not challenging. Some find the Bible to be offensive. Some find it hard to discern what exactly it is that God is trying to say through these men. You've heard me say over and over again, the question we ask when we go to the Bible is, what is God saying? Not what do I want him to say. What is God saying? And sometimes that's hard to figure out, right? I was talking to Zoe and Zane the other night, and of course this was before Zoe was going off to college, and I was talking to them about, you know, Zane's going to be gone in a year, and and Zoe was about to be gone, and I said, look, you're going to go off to school, more than likely both of them at Harding, one of them at Harding right now. You're going to go off to school, and, and you're going to get there. And your eyes and your mind and your heart is going to be opened up in a way spiritually that it never has been before. And you're going to hear professors teaching things. You're going to hear your friends who came from a different background talking about things. You're going to be exposed to things that are different than anything you've ever experienced because you've basically grown up at one church and heard one preacher your whole life. 
And I said, that's absolutely incredible, and I'm thankful, and it's great, and it's wonderful. It really is. There's nothing wrong with that, except if you only take people's word for it and you don't investigate yourself. Where people get in trouble is you cannot deny that at some point all of us are going to have to step out of our bubble and confront different things and different ideas and ideologies and dogmas and things of that nature. We're all going to have to face that at some point. You can't ever protect yourself completely from that. And that's not a bad thing. Because a child goes from an affiliated faith to an owned faith at some point, or at least they should. I don't want them believing just because I've told them to believe it. I want them to own that faith. And a lot of times you can't get there. No, I would say you can't get there without doing some struggling and some questioning, right? But here's the problem. Our young people go off to school and they take a professor's word for it. They take someone else's word for it. I heard a professor say one time, a Bible professor say one time, you know, I just want the kids to think for themselves. I want them to come to a conclusion that is not their parents, but is their own. And I said, yes, that's great. But you've got to be careful not to dismantle 18 years of what I taught them. Here's the thing. You go off to school and you hear competing ideas. Some things you hear that are great and good. And they confirm what you've already heard. But some things compete not only with what you've been taught, but God's Word. Where do you turn? To God's Word. That's the problem. We go off to school or we get out on our own and we join the workforce or we move away from home and we hear competing ideas and we don't go back to center. We don't come back around to the compass and find true north and figure out, what is God saying? Not what Dr. So-and-so said, not even what my buddy said who goes to a different church that's not like mine, or what somebody said that, that comes from a different background. Where is true north? Where is God pointing me? That's where we mess up. I think it's fantastic that my kids are going to go out into the real world and be confronted with things, some good and some bad, that's going to stretch them and cause them to think and challenge them as long as they know where to go to find the answer. And ultimately, it's not even me. It's God's Word. Because it's inspired, it's breathed out by Him. He's the one that spoke it. He's the one that we need to be listening to. In his book, The Reason for God, Timothy Keller stated this. He said, if you don't trust the Bible enough to let it challenge and correct your thinking, how could you ever have a personal relationship with God? If you pick and choose what you want to believe and you reject the rest, how will you ever have a God who can contradict you? You won't. Only if your God can say things that outrage you and make you struggle as in a real friendship or marriage will you know that you have gotten a hold of a real God and not a figment of your imagination. So an authoritative Bible is not the enemy of a personal relationship with God. It is the precondition of it. Can I get an amen? Absolutely. It's not about studying the message. It's about the message studying you. It's not about just reading the Bible. It's about letting the Bible read you. We study God's Word, but we let God's Word study us as well. We confront it. And like an auditor, we say, Look at my books. Look at my heart. Tell me where I'm off. Tell me where I need to get back into alignment. Tell me how to recalibrate because I just want to do what God says. I want to be what God wants me to be. That's it. In John chapter 6, Jesus gives this, this message 
to droves of people that were following him. Masses of people were following him. And he tells them, I'm the bread of life. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood will have eternal life. You remember that whole thing in John 6. And it says, many people turned away from him. Do you think these people knew the word of God? Now, I think they knew something about the word of God. They had the Old Testament scriptures. Maybe, maybe they didn't know much, but they knew something. Yet the authority was right in front of them. God in the flesh. The word became flesh. The word was right in front of them, telling them what they needed to hear, and it challenged them. And what did they do when it challenged them? They walked away. I don't want any part of that. And he looks at his disciples and he says, you want to go away also? And Peter, of course, makes that great confession of faith. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of life. We must study God's word and we must let God's word study us. We can't walk away when it challenges us. We can't try to find a loophole when it doesn't agree with us. We can't alter it. We don't put it up for a vote. God has spoken. And whatever God has spoken is what I need to bend my life to. My only obligation is to obey. Because the Bible is not about mastering the message. It's about letting the message master us. Who cares about your high view of Scripture if you don't allow it to change you? We have a perfect Bible from a perfect God. We have a perfectly trustworthy Bible because we have a perfectly trustworthy God, which means that we can accept all of it, even the hard stuff. If I'm going to let God's Word change me, then I first must let it challenge me. I must allow what I read to humbly trouble me. Or else, how am I ever going to change? How am I ever going to be better? Folks, without the authority of Scripture, the church is like a crocodile without any teeth. It can sit there and open its mouth as many times and as often as it wants, and nobody's scared of it. Nobody cares. Without the authority of God's word, we are nothing. There's no reason for you to be here. There's no reason for you to open up your Bible and study it. None. It has no meaning for us. But we know that the Bible is not like that. The Bible is God-breathed. Theonoustos, it came from his very mouth. That book that you have in your hand, and, or maybe on your app, on your phone, is the inerrant, infallible, God-breathed word. Read it, study it, live it, allow it to change you, because I know this for a fact. A closed Bible never changed anybody. A closed Bible never did anyone any good. If you're not living by those words, and you'd like to this morning, you'd like to get your life right, let us help you. Maybe you've been studying those words and they've challenged you enough to know that you need to do something different with your life. If we can help you come as we stand and as we sing.